welcome back to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast that discusses Chinese culture and history through historical Chinese dramas. We are your hosts, Karen and Kathy. Today we are discussing the end of episode 48 and all of episode 49 of The Story of Yanxi Palace or Yanxi Gongrie. This podcast is in English with proper nouns and certain phrases spoken in Mandarin Chinese. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter or else email us at karenandkathy at chasingdramas.com. This podcast episode consists of a drama episode recap and then we'll move on to discuss the history portrayed in the episode. Erqing really is a nasty piece of work. I feel like the drama just moves along when we don't see her, and now we have to talk about her again, and I'm like, ugh. She cannot change her ways despite all of her assurances to Fu Hung, and she ends up wrongly accusing Fu Hung's maid, Qing Lian, of pushing Er Qing's son, Fu Kang An, into a pond. In reality, Qing Lian was the one who saved the boy when he jumped into a pond to grab a toy. Fu Hung only hears from Erqing that Qing Lian was let go from the household and agrees to give her a handsome dowry now that she's out of the house. Fu Hung does not protest this and walks away while I'm seething at the fake smile Erqing has on her face. Sadly, out in the streets a short while later, Fu Hung sees a young woman being brutally attacked by two men only to find that it is Qing Lian Turns out, Er Qing had sent Qing Lian off to be married, but instead led her into a brothel. The young woman couldn't handle the humiliation and would constantly run away, but then would be beaten heavily for her actions. Sadly, after being rescued by Fu Hong, she commits suicide. On her deathbed, she lets it be known that she loves Fu Hong. Well, she doesn't explicitly say those words, but it's pretty clear and that she hates Er Qing for what she's done. All of this is a result of Er Qing's jealousy. But even on her deathbed, Fu Hung does not agree to her request that maybe in the next life, they could have a future together. Ah, Fu Hung is way too much of a romantic because the reality is why he didn't agree to Qing Lian's request is because he's thinking that I've saved my next life for Ying Luo. Qing Lian implores Fu Hong to not cling onto the past for a relationship that can never happen and passes away. As if this tragedy was not infuriating enough, when Fu Hong serves divorce papers to Er Qing, ugh, she just scoffs. Her attitude when Fu Hong says he knows the truth about what happened to Qing Lian is one of uncaring. She doesn't see anything wrong with what she did to Qing Lian, God. The restraint Fu Hong showed in front of her is commendable. I don't think I would have had that much strength to um, not shout more than Fu Hong did. And I'm just thinking, way back in the beginning of the drama, I was like, Mingyu, you are the worst. Now Er Xing is like a hundred times way worse than whatever Mingyu ever did. I mean, yeah, it's pretty bold of Er Xing because she's like, nope, I'm not getting divorced and rips up the uh, divorce papers. Fu Hung's mother and third brother arrive to try to protect Er Qing, who then even hits her head to try, quote-unquote try, to kill herself. Where have we seen this before? 
Yeah, such a classic. 一哭二闹三上吊 which is just first you cry, second you、uh, cause a whole scene, and then third you、uh, threaten to commit suicide. I mean, it's quite clear that all of this from Erting was just a show to garner the pity、uh, from Fu Hang's family. I mean, I feel bad for Fu Hang. He just cannot win. He is so checked out with this crazy woman and orders her to live at a Buddhist temple forever to repent for her sins. But do you think she'll change? Absolutely not. The rest of this episode is way less infuriating, thankfully. We return to the palace. Yin Luo now consort Ling forcefully calls for the emperor to eat because it is quite clear that he is frustrated with matters at court. During the meal, Yin Luo maintains her style as a jokester and sits herself down while the emperor eats, which is definitely out of proper decorum. As we've seen in prior episodes, when the emperor eats, even the empress must stand next to him and watch. There's a good banter back and forth, and. The emperor finally opens up about why he has been frustrated. The Western War Front is not doing well, and when asked who at court is willing to step up to fight for the Qing Empire, the only person brave enough to volunteer is Fu Hang. I will also pause here because, again, the eunuch Li Yu's facial expressions the entire time during the meal was so funny. Every single time Yingluo did something out of step, he's like, "Oh my gosh, you cannot do this!" Or,、um, "Is this allowed?" <laughs> But Liu is just over there, kind of like, "I know Ling Fei or Concert Ling has the favor, so maybe we'll let this slide." But oh no, <laughs> what will the ancestors say? Well, back to the discussion about military matters. Despite knowing that. This is not acceptable for a woman in the imperial harem to discuss court matters. Ying Luo gives her thoughts on why Fu Hang should be sent to the front lines. It's where he thrives, and that's what the late empress would have wanted for him as well. Indeed, after that one meal, the next day Fu Hang and Hai Lancha discuss how it is possible that the emperor would finally agree to Fu Hang's request. At that moment, Ying Luo's Palanquin procession walks by Fu Hong and Hai Lan Cha. Yin Luo gives Fu Hong the faintest of nods before looking onwards, and Fu Hong has this weird, you know, goofy grin on his face, and that's because he knows that it was she who helped persuade the emperor to accept his request to head off to war again, and this is her acknowledgement or subtle way of sending him off to war. With Fu Hong now off to the front lines, it is time to turn back to palace tactics. The emperor wants to invite Ying Luo to go hunting, but before that, he needs to teach her how to ride. This is a great honor and should be a fun experience. But Ying Luo has the wheels turning in her little head and lets it be known that she is going on this little excursion. Why would she do that? Of course, it is to force those who want her out of the way to strike. A riding accident is very easy, and sure enough, we see Chun Guifei and Yu Fei talking. Chun Guifei gives Yu Fei a prized ginseng for the fifth prince, who is currently ill. After Yu Fei accepts, Chun Fei's maid asks whether or not Yu Fei knows or heard that Ying Luo is going riding the next day. Chun Fei just says, "Don't disappoint me," to Yu Fei, and then walks away without any further instructions.
Well, the time has come for Ying Luo to learn to ride. It is quite funny as she has no idea what she's doing. And I am thoroughly enjoying this little scene because, hey, guess what? Nie Yuan, the actor for The Emperor, can actually ride. This shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone because he's been in dramas on horseback for 20 plus years. So you can tell that he knows his way on horseback. After some good banter back and forth where Ying Luo is struggling to stay upright, the emperor instructs the tame horse he asked for her to be given to Ying Luo. In the meantime, he hears of the latest military updates from Hailan Cha. But just as Ying Luo is getting started on her new horse, this horse starts bucking her around and actually throws her off. She goes flying in the air. Luckily, the emperor jumps forward and helps catch her fall, but not without injury on both sides. Back at Yanxi Gong, the doctors diagnose her with an arm fracture as she is currently out cold. The emperor instructs everyone in the palace to care for Ying Luo, but sadly, he has to run off to do his own work. It is in these moments where once again I am impressed with the work ethic of this emperor. He does a full day of work, hearing all sorts of updates from his court ministers, only for Li Yu to find out at the end of the day that the emperor was sporting a nasty wound as well on his arm. If you watch throughout the episode, I think this is good because sometimes in dramas, they kind of like just dismiss the fact that uh, the character is supposed to be injured. But as soon as Yingluo falls to the ground, the emperor's like sporting a weakened arm. We close out this episode recap with the emperor stating that he does not want to cause further distress to Yanxi Palace by calling for doctors, which shows his care for Ying Luo. The only other major thing to call out here is that Ying Luo asked for her adoptive brother Yuan Chuan Wang to join her in Yanxi Gong. If you recall, he was extremely upset at being left behind back at Yuan Mingyuan, not because Yingluo decided to go back to the palace, but because she decided to go back to the palace as a woman of the emperor. He was very mad and swore that they would break off their brother-sister relationship. Now though, when Xiao Xuanzi came to ask, he was very violent towards him, but Yuan Chunwang finally did agree to come back. In any case, this anger will come back to bite Wei Ying Luo. Now, before we move on to history, I do want to talk about some of the commentary that was levied on the actress for Er Qing, Su Qing, during these couple of episodes when the drama first aired. Unfortunately, the comments weren't that great or kind to her because most people said that it was during these scenes, especially in episode um, 49, where all she was doing was just screaming with bulging eyes. I personally did think that this acting was a little bit over the top, but fans of the show basically dismissed the actress's acting skills because of her performance in scenes such as this, which is unfortunate. Yes, I would say that Su Xing's acting skills are not up to the level of, for example, Charmaine She, who acts the current empress, but the amount of vitriol that the actress got shortly after the drama aired was very much undeserved. All right, let's discuss some history. In 
episode forty-eight, we see that 后宫 or 后妃不能与皇上进餐 First is of course the refresher that women in the imperial harem cannot eat at the same table as the emperor in the Qing Dynasty. We did talk about this briefly in episode seventeen, but have more of a concrete example here and some more information on this specific custom. In this episode, we see that the emperor is seated by himself for meals, and poor Li Yu almost has a heart attack when Ying Luo plops herself down to eat with the emperor. Let's give some more data on the subject and the overall apparatus of the kitchen. By 1750, the imperial kitchens has an inner kitchen called Nei Shan Fang and an outer kitchen. For the inner kitchen, there's the meat department, vegetable department, grains department, pastries department, etc. They manage the meals and food for the emperor and the imperial harem. The outer kitchen, or Wei Shan Fang, focused on managing the meals for the ministers and imperial guards. Each person in the palace, from the emperor to the ladies of the imperial harem to the princes and princesses, all had recorded notes on how much food was to be allocated to each person according to his or her rank. I'm going to use the word "catty" a lot in Mandarin.、Uh, that's a jin, which is roughly about half a kilogram. The emperor, of course, had the most lavish of meals and was allocated the most amount of food. This included, for example, five tin or caddies of meat for soup, twenty-two caddies of plated meat, two goats, one caddie of lard, five chickens, three ducks, nineteen caddies of greens, including cabbage, cilantro, spinach, celery, various types of carrots, turnips, winter melons, etc., six caddies of onions. Sauces included two caddies of vinegar, three caddies of sauce、uh, or soy sauce. Eight plates of bo bo, which are basically like buns. Then there's also the milk and tea allotments. That was just his daily allowance. It drops significantly for each subsequent level in the harem. At the level of the noble consort or guifei, the daily allotment is three caddies and eight liang of meat and vegetables. Plated meats is six caddies, and each month they're allowed seven chickens and ducks. Respectively, for the consort or fei level, that drops to three caddies of meats and vegetables, six caddies of plated meats, and only five chickens and ducks per month. There was also the allotment of various vegetables, sauces, lard, milk, and of course tea. I find it hilarious that the allotment of tea for the emperor was a whopping seventy-five bags, while for the lower-ranked concubines it could only be five bags. So basically, my takeaway is that the emperor was running around just high off of caffeine all the time. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense. They barely slept. <laughs> When the emperor ate, he will always be facing south. This is, of course, to reflect him as the head of the table. When eating, no one is allowed to persuade the emperor of eating one particular dish. That is why, when in this episode Wei Yingluo did, Li Yu was aghast. We also saw that Yingluo kept around a few dishes to eat longer、uh, when the emperor was done, because as a refresher for Qing Dynasty emperors, and we talked about this in episode seventeen, they can only eat three bites of any one dish. This was, of course, to prevent food poisoning, and if 
The emperor really enjoyed a dish, well, tough luck, because three bites was all he got. It would then go back into rotation, but not be served for some time. The eunuch would also be the one to place small amounts of the emperor's dish into a plate. There are records with regards to Empress Dowager Cixi that no one knew what she liked or disliked because she still followed this rule into the late 19th century. Now, as for what was on the table, there were typically between 15 to 25 dishes for each meal with at least eight main dishes and four smaller dishes. And then you add up hot pot, congee, and soup. We didn't see any hot pot right at this table, but as we mentioned in episode 30 and 31, Qianlong Emperor loved hot pot. Next, let's turn our attention to military matters and war. The reason why Wei Yingluo had to console the emperor is because of the dire news from the front. Here is where it becomes very murky history-wise because the screenwriter merges several events together. In 1754, Emperor Qianlong, who saw an opportunity to conquer the Zungars, wanted to send the military out west to conquer this long, troublesome region. However, due to the Qing Dynasty's historical difficulties or mm, defeats in the region dating all the way back to the late 17th century, Qianlong's court officials were very hesitant on giving their support on this war effort. Fu Hong was indeed the only one who supported Emperor Qianlong in this endeavor. Based on my research, he was instrumental in rallying the Grand Council, or Junji Chu, in supplying intel to the emperor and supporting the logistics of war, including securing of funds and food. However, I did not read that he actually fought in any of the battles. He mainly just stayed in Beijing to support the logistics and the intelligence gathering of this war or this campaign. By 1755, this was the final conquest of the Zungars. The general who led the Qing forces was a man called Wu Ya Zhao Hui. Here is a prime example of Wikipedia falling short because there is not even an entry for this general. Comparatively, when I started my research on Bai Ke, the page for him is very long and there's a ton of videos on Chinese websites praising or describing the exploits or accomplishments of this general. Zhao Hui came from the Manchu Standard Yellow Banner and was the grandson of Emperor Yongzheng's mother, so he is related to Emperor Qianlong. He is credited as the man who brought the modern-day regions of Xinjiang under Qing rule, defeated the Zanggar Khanate, and defeated the revolt of the Altishar Kojas. That means this also credits him with one of the largest land expansions for any Chinese empire in history. In 1755, Qianlong sent the Manchu general Zhao Hui to lead a campaign against the Zanggars. Amersana was a prince of the Koit Orat tribe. And apologies on this, I'm not very familiar with how to pronounce certain Mongolian <laughs> words. Well, this Amersana was betrayed by his longtime ally, Dawachi, and then in turn swore allegiance to Emperor Qianlong. He joined Zhao Hui's forces, 
And the Qing army reached Yili in 1755 and forced Dawachi, who was one of the main Zanggar Khans, to surrender. Qianlong then appointed Amersana as a Khan of the Koid and one of four equal Khans. Unfortunately, Amersana was not happy with this agreement. That means that shortly after, Amersana rebelled against Qing authority after rallying the majority of the remaining Orats, or also other Zanggars. It was once again General Zhao Hui who defeated these remaining forces and Amersana died in Russia after fleeing there. Then we turn to the campaign in Altishar, or the Revolt of the Altishar Hojas, which in Chinese is known as the Da Xiao He Zhuo Zhiluan. In 1757, two Altishar nobles, the Hoja brothers Burhan al-Din and Huaja il-Jahan, or Huo Jijan, started a revolt against the Qing dynasty in the southern part of modern-day Xinjiang. In the drama, we hear Huo Dun, which is the combination of the two. Emperor Qianlong ordered General Zhao Hui to turn his attention towards this rebellion. In 1758, Zhao Hui marched south from Yili. He was unsuccessful in recovering the fortresses at Yarkland and Kashgar, even though he did win or recapture a couple of smaller cities along the way and was forced to retreat. He set up camp near the Black River, hence why his camp was called the Black River Camp, or Hei Shui Ying, which is what we have in the drama. Zhao Hui did try several times to attack the two fortresses, but was unsuccessful. On one attempt, he tried to lure the rebels out of Yarkland, but upon reaching a bridge with his forces, the bridge broke. The rebels, with 5,000 cavalry and 10,000 infantry, took their chance. Zhao Hui and his forces fled back to the Black River camp and were surrounded. Honestly, I'm surprised he didn't die <laughs> in that battle. Emperor Qianlong sent reinforcements, but were stopped by these rebels. The siege at Black River camp lasted for several months, including during the dead of winter. Supplies were running short, and it was a desperate time. I think in the drama, this is when... Um, the emperor found out about the siege and was trying to find someone to head over to save uh, General Zhao Hui. And this is where Fu Hung stepped up. And the reason why I'm bringing these two together is because Fu Hung was not involved directly in this battle, but supported previously uh, Emperor, or sorry, General Zhao Hui in the logistics for the battle against the Zungars. Now back to the Black River camp. In several clever and lucky moves, the Qing forces were able to actually gather ammunition from the Hojas when they shot into the forest, plucking bullets and arrows from the trees. So what happened was General Zhao Hui's forces kind of lured them to start shooting into the trees and the Qing forces were safely hidden. But apparently they were able to gather about like tens of thousands of rounds of bullets and arrows from the trees, which they could then use for their own uh, retaliation efforts against the rebels. The Qing forces were also able to find previously hidden caches of supplies when digging down for more water for their wells, which is why they were able to last for several months. Out west, another tribe began looting a Kashgar city at the same time Qing forces from the Blackwater camp burned two Altishahar camps. Huo Jijian thought that this was a calculated effort amongst the two forces and temporarily turned his attention to the other tribe. 
Qing reinforcements seized this opportunity here, and in the early months of 1759, with a force of 3,000 strong, came to the rescue. Another general, Arguin, also led an infantry of 600, cavalry of 2,000, and 1,000 camels to fight against the Kojas, bringing the front on two sides. The rescue was a success. That kind of leads to the end of the Battle of the Black River Camp, or which is a crucial battle in the history of defeating the Altishar Hojas. I probably won't continue on the description for the rest of these campaigns. There's um, a relatively good Wikipedia article on these campaigns, but unfortunately, these battles aren't that well recorded in English. It's much more detailed in Chinese. In history, as I said, Fu Hong was not present in these battles, so his departure was mainly for dramatic purposes. The general we should be talking about, though, is General Zhao Hui. He unfortunately is not very famous in Chinese or in Chinese culture, but I think, and as I was reading, many historians believe that he should be due to his contributions of expanding the Chinese empire. And that is it for today's podcast episode. Thank you all so much for listening. As a friendly reminder, if you are looking for sites to watch Chinese dramas and you are in the U.S., please head on over to our sponsor, Jubao TV. That is J-U-B-A-O TV. It is a free service that has a selection of Chinese dramas and movies to watch, all with English subtitles. They have also just launched on Plex, so you can watch that on TV and on their website. Thanks again so much for listening. We will catch you all in the next podcast episode.